Good evening. This is Milton Rosenberg. Welcome again to Extension 720, and welcome to our annual Night at the Opera. That doesn't feature the Marx Brothers. This year it features Peter Sellers, the celebrated modern opera director, and Robert Spano, who is music director of the Atlantic Symphony, a conductor who's made a tremendous record, and he's still quite young, uh, not yet having reached 50, uh, indeed a little bit over 40, and he is the conductor of the current opera, directed by Peter Sellers at the Lyric, the opera Dr. Atomic, uh, the work by John Adams. And we'll be playing a lot of opera, some of it, much of it old and traditional and still glorious to listen to, and some of it new and really quite exciting. I'll be telling you more about all of that. We'll be hearing lots of good music, and all of that will commence right after the update on this evening's news from Jim Goodis. Yes, this is our annual Night of the Opera uh, broadcast. No, that is not uh, Puccini, that's not Mozart, that's not even Richard Strauss. Uh, that is, in fact, John Adams. And uh, that's from his opera, Nixon in China. Uh, and that is the uh, opening, well, it's not the opening, but it's uh, Nixon dances. No, rather, the chairman dances. <laughs> the chairman dances. The chairman dances. It's, 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 it's the very sexy Chairman Mao who liked to surround himself with very nubile young Chinese women, and of course his wild wife, who was running the Cultural Revolution at the same time. So it's extremely spicy material, and it's delicious. And the voice you've just heard is that of Peter Sellers, who is uh, the librettist, essentially, yes. of that very opera, uh, and of the opera now on the stage at the Lyric, namely uh, Dr. Atomic, and is, of course, a celebrated director of opera as well as a director and innovator in many, many other areas of modern theater. Our other guest is Robert Spano, who is directing, uh, the musical director for, or the conductor, I should say, for the current production of Dr. Atomic and is a very, very busy major figure in American and international musical circles. He is the music director of the Atlanta Symphony and uh, has done a great deal of work in opera and in general symphonic and uh, yet other realms of music, including as a piano soloist. Gentlemen, you are our guides tonight to uh, conventional, classical, traditional, joyous, lovely opera, and also to some samplings from modern opera. Absolutely, and the fun is that the modern operas are the coolest and have the best tunes. Well, here's one coming up. Here's one coming up that has a really good tune and a wonderful libretto, done by a uh, Jewish gentleman uh, in Italy who wound up the libretto. That is, wound up teaching Italian at Columbia University. Oh, good point. Uh, this is from Don Giovanni. Mozart wrote the music, and the lyrics are by da Mr. Ponte. Lorenzo da Ponte. Lorenzo da Ponte, uh, and this is. Set this for us. Uh, Robert Spano, can you do this? We're going to do this. Is Bryn Turpel singing the Madamina, uh, wonderful comic aria. He, Turpel was on this program a few years ago when we were doing our annual night at the opera. But um, you remember how the, how the, the yarn goes in this one? 
Well, you know what? I would actually, since I staged that for, for 10 years, and I have the most fun with it, yeah. I was just, I'm really going to just jump in and well, say. Well, Donna Elvi Elvira shows up. And she Donna Elvira me. shows up. She's desperately trying to get a hookup, uh, get her hookup going with Don Giovanni again. And, you know, because he promised her all these things. And then, literally, uh, Leporello gets out the phone book and just says, goes through the list of all the women who, and all the phone numbers, and of course it's 5,000 women, yeah. and, and, goes through, and goes through old ones and young ones, but of course the other thing that's just right in the middle of all this wild comedy is something totally creepy that turns out to be the end of the line for Don Giovanni is he has a real, the thing he loves most is little girls. Mm -hmm. And so right in the middle of this comic fest, it's also creepy. And while Leporello is laughing, this woman is weeping, her heart is broken, and you get love. It's crazy, it's all over the place, it's the greatest joy, it has this comic edge, and it also devastates you. Leporello, of course, is uh, the Don's man, manservant, and general factotum. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, secretary, private, you know, keep the appointment. And, and keep, keep those keeps women moving. Of, keeps the list of all the contracts. Keeps the list, keeps the people waiting, and moves them right in. So here he is, right out. cooling out the mark, cooling out Dada Elvira. Madamina, il catalogo è questo, delle belle chiamo il padron mio, il catalogo è ricrio fattio. Osservate, leggete con me, osservate, leggete con me. In Italia 640, in l'Almania 231, 100 in Francia e in Turchia 91, ma in Spagna, ma in Spagna son già mille tre, mille tre, mille tre, quanto a queste contadine, cameriere cittadine, quanto contesse baronesse, Artisani, principesse, che vanno donne, donne grado, donne forma, donne età, donne forma, donne età. In Italia, 640. In Almania, 231. 100 in Francia, in Turchia, 91. Ma, ma, ma in Spagna.
Is there, Robert Spano, a better uh, Leporello on the international opera stage these days? I doubt it. <laughs> no. He's such a wonderfully spirited, fine singer. Oh, it's in every every direction he goes in, he Absolutely. just does. He acquits himself nobly, and he's a great, uh, happy spirit as well. Oh, he's sat sheer magnitude. He sat with us in the studio one night. No, How wonderful! We just had a wonderful time. He is irresistible. Here's and he knows it. <laughs> Here's something that is resistible, except I am not allowed to resist it. We've got to pause for some commercials. Usually I welcome them, but when we're doing a program on opera, or even for that matter with the CSO, which we do once a year or so, uh, interspersed between the fine music are rather clangy commercials. And I pray that they're not too clangy, but here is the first round. And we return to our a very special night at the Lyric Opera. Our two guests tonight in studio and many other guests singing to us via <laughs> recordings 
recordings made available to us by our good friend Jack Zimmerman, the PR guy at the Lyric, who was here just a few weeks ago talking about his own new novel. Uh, but our two guests in studio are Robert Spano, the music director of the Atlanta Symphony and a very active conductor around the world, conducting Dr. Atomic at the Lyric uh, this not this night, but uh, over the next few nights before that uh, reaches the end of its run. And our other guest, Peter Sellers, the celebrated uh, opera director and general theatrical innovator, who is, of course, uh, the librettist, so to speak, for Dr. Atomic, though there's a special angle on that we need to develop <laughs> yes, later. Yes. Really, the U.S. government is the librettist <laughs> as well. Uh, and he is, of course, the director of this opera, as he has directed so many others by John Adams, who is the composer. Uh, but first of all, we are going to um, classic bel canto opera, and we're going to hear Casta Diva uh, from Bellini's Norma. Uh, this and sung by the great Maria Callas. Uh, the there's only one. I mean, really, she was. I mean, we've just had, of course, Lorraine Hunt Lieberson in this world, who also had these incredible powers of Callas. This secret magnetism, this voice that just goes right through your whole being, and you feel physically. It's just incredible. There's nothing like it. And of course, this aria, which is this midsummer madness of druidic ceremonies under the moon with the flute, the silvery flute, giving you the wild edge of consciousness and this intense feminine power that actually moves the waves and moves the universe. It's a just, it's a cosmic showstopper. And of course, it's a vocal tour de force. Uh, and it's that magic wild world of opera that you say, this is not CNN. You know, you say, <laughs> okay, we are going into the world of opera, which takes you to the far reaches of the human world and into the supernatural. You know, in the old days, um, when I was starting to do this program rather a long time ago, one of the most exciting uh, things I ever did, only four or five years into starting this program, was a night like this one, the first one we did with the Lyric Opera, and artist Kranich was our guest, as artist was then for many other occasions over the years. But uh, she had very strong memories. Of course, she wasn't then the, the manager of the opera, but she was working at it. Right, Indeed, right. she was even a singer uh, in right. secondary yes. roles. Right. And she had wonderful memories of Callas uh, at the Lyric. Though I'm not sure whether Callas did, uh, did Norma at the Lyric or not. Well, let's put it this way. This was the city in America where Callas appeared. I mean, Chicago, of course. This is where she Callas first made her debut. full imprint. This was her debut. And, yeah. and, you know, New York had to wait. And Chicago was ahead. And I must say, artists also invited me before any other uh, opera house in this country. Yeah. And I got to make my opera debut in this country here in Chicago. And I, I love that. I love the audiences here and the kind of welcoming mm. spirit. And that uh, there's something very special about Lyric. Uh, now, Norma is the chief priestess in ancient England, the chief priestess for the Druidic Rite. Right. And she's gathering the other uh, priestesses together for a very important ceremony. In English translation, the opening words are as follows. O pure goddess, who uh, silver these sacred ancient plants, turn thy beautiful semblance on us, unclouded and unveiled. Temper, O goddess, the brave real of the ardent spirits. Scatter on the earth the peace that thou make rain in the sky, and so on. Yes, if you have Just a, prosaic thoughts. If you have any hallucinogens in the house, this is the time to reach for them. And here it is. Mm -hmm. 
Robert Spendel, when you hear that voice, and when you hear that, uh, her using the voice that way, what uh, you're experienced, uh, a highly successful musician, you've heard an awful lot of music in your time, does it move you? Oh, absolutely. It not only moves, but informs and teaches. What does it teach you? Well, the most important thing one can learn from any singer is how music and breath are wedded to each other, mm -hmm. and then when you get someone who breathes music so beautifully as she does, then then it's a it's a an exemplary uh, rendering. Some other singers don't breathe as well as she does. Well, oh, singing. I didn't mean to say it that way. It's just uh, I was using it poetically. Yeah. <laughs> no, and also I have to say one of the things that. Callis and I'm taking you literally, which I shouldn't do. Well, <laughs> maybe. You know, one of the things that Callis does is she. It's not a pretty sound. It's beyond pretty. You know, we now have a lot of pretty sounds. You know, a mm -hmm. little more like you know the songbirds, but she was no songbird. That's a real woman. She had force. That's a real woman with all of the danger and darkness and mystery and sensuality. And also this transcendent, soaring, you know, range that goes all the way up. What in the world was she doing with Aristotle Onassis? 
You know, uh, we're unable to confirm or deny <laughs> <laughs> anything about this one. That is just too weird. But then again, there's there's a lot of things we're unable to talk about yeah. with, with Mr. Anasis. Sorry well, about one that. One thing we can't talk about are ordinary commodities and services, and we pause to do that after we first take care of the news. And for the news, to Jim Goodis in the newsroom. And we are now going to premiere for Chicago, though maybe it's been on the other classical music station, the music of Osvaldo Goliov. Uh, do I say that correctly? Yeah, I believe so. Goliov, uh, who is, I read from something I've just brought up on the screen, was born in 1960, was raised in Eastern Europe uh, in a Jewish household, and then in a Jewish household in La Plata, Argentina, a, uh, a provincial capital of affiliated people, etc. But he's a resident in this country now, and you take him to be a great modern composer. Oh, absolutely. Osvaldo is one of the most dynamic, exciting, happening things in music today. He's living in Boston now. Mm -hmm. um, I've worked with Osvaldo for quite some time. We taught at Tanglewood a great deal. This um, selection we'll be listening to is from an opera of his that Peter and I have both had a tremendous amount of involvement with because uh, I did the world premiere of the first version of the opera at Tanglewood with uh, Osvaldo, who was writing it while we were rehearsing it. It was a wonderful experience, actually, because we were seeing this piece being born as we went along. The name of the opera is? Anadamar. And, and it's like working with Irving Berlin. I mean, literally, <laughs> right. <laughs> the, the music is appearing every day during rehearsal. It's like shock. It's hair-raising. It is hair-raising, but very exciting. And then a year later, Peter uh, worked with Osvaldo in Santa Fe, creating the version of the opera that now exists, has been recorded, and just won a couple of Grammys, I believe. Yeah. The opera yeah. is about the Spanish poet uh, Garcia Lorca. Exactly, and 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 his death at the hands of the the the, the fascist under under Franco, and this amazing woman who was his uh, idol and the the woman who was the the basis for the the all the great female roles that he wrote, and uh, who who came to America for a tour just as the Spanish Civil War was exploding and was never allowed back into into Spain and then founded all of the great national theaters of Latin America and was one of these fiery, fiery individuals who went head to head with the Perones, with all of these Latin American dictators of the 40s and 50s and and brought a new generation of Latin American theater students and created a new generation of theater in this in this hemisphere. So how is this used and how is this handled in the opera itself? Well, the opera itself is the last day of her life where she really flashes back on the death of Lorca, what happened, what she doesn't know, what she imagines. Meanwhile, the spirit of Lorca is with her as she herself is dying. And meanwhile, she's trying to pass everything she can onto her students, including this thirst for freedom that is unquenchable. And so the opera begins with her first memory of Lorca. And this is Lorca singing about this uh, Mariana, Mariana Pineda, an image of the, the, the freedom movement in Spain, a, a 19th century woman who defied uh, 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 the military, and she was kind of the Betsy Ross. She she sewed the flag of the first uh, insurrections mm -hmm. in the 1820s, and this is uh, well, essentially, saying she wasn't just a revolutionary. She was the most beautiful woman and love of my life. I saw her statue from my window when I was nine years old. Who is singing the role of? This is Kelly O'Connor, who is a magnificent mezzo soprano. Uh -huh. Uh, whose career is, is blossoming and blooming. And uh, she did the uh, first performances of the role and uh, is, is uh, 
rightfully represented here on the recording. And just as you heard all those dark, strange, mysterious tones from Kalas, listen to this dark, strange depth of the voice and this moonlight that's in the orchestra, as just as in Castadiva, this repeating figure in the orchestra takes you into a moonlit night of magic and romance.
quite astonishing i don't know this don't know his work at all some of your listeners may know his work from uh, a couple years ago ravinia we did the the Mm -hmm. passion of saint mark uh and he's been the composer in residence with the chicago symphony this season and will be next season as well as i told you i kind of fade out after richard strauss (laughs) (laughs) well what's so exciting but i'm not totally irredeemable you know well music is uh, classical music is fading back in what's so great is to hear tunes like this being written in our lifetime yeah. and music this uh, as, you know, as we listen to it I said to you it, he's, it sounds very Jewish and you agree oh yeah no I mean he has returned and, and then I said Kol Nidre there was a passage there which sounded like pure cantorial chant well it is the return of this long Jewish melody that is a song of despair and renewal yeah. And and this kind of heartbreak and joy all in the same all in the same long, long And yet melody. it has Spanish cadence somehow, doesn't well, it? Yes, because yeah. of course. But also, you know, again the, the Jews were expelled from, from, from Andalusia, you know, in fourteen ninety two. But of course mm. so much Jewish tradition comes from the south of Spain. Yeah. And so Osvaldo is connecting to that. And of course, once you put all these roots together, you get something so rich. It is great, fascinating music. We'll hear more from that opera after we pause for these words. Well, for the work of Osvaldo Goliov, I say more, more. Oh, let's do have more. And there, we have more from the same opera. Yes, exactly. Tell and this was a trio one. later in the opera, but uh, I before I forget to mention it, one of the singers we're hearing is... Uh, um, Kelly O'Connor again, but also um, we are hearing Don Upshaw, we heard at the end of Kelly's aria there, where it turned into a trio, who will be featured in this following trio, but also Jessica Rivera, who is currently singing the role of Kitty Oppenheimer in Dr. Atomic at the Lyric Opera of Chicago. So she's thrilling uh, is here to be, to be heard live. It's what's thrilling is to be present at the birth of a star, where literally in Ina de Mar, Kelly was the promising young singer, and you'll hear her come in at the, at the, you know, in this trio as the third voice entering. 
But now, of course, her career has taken off, and she is nobody's protege anymore. She is definitely, when you come to Dr. Tomic, she is blazing across the evening. But you also mentioned Dawn Upshaw. The great Dawn Upshaw was in the Frau ohne Schatten, I think, Well, the lyric production. Well, you know, Dawn, Dawn, I... No? She's, well, she's been in... She has come through, of course, a lot She's done it in other venues. And, of course, Osvaldo is now writing... All of his vocal music these last few years has been for Dawn. I mean, he is, she has been his main inspiration, and you'll hear her unmistakable voice right in the center of this trio. And this is as the figure of Margarita Shirgu is dying, the spirit of Lorca hovers over her in the room while her student, who is Jessica Rivera, listens to her last words. And what you hear musically is something pass across three generations, from the spirit of Lorca to the last moments of Margarita Shirgu, who kept his work alive for the next 40 years, to her students, who will now keep this work alive into the next year. Now, do I understand that this, this uh, uh, performance is under your direction, Robert? Yes, it is. With the Atlanta Symphony. That's right. Of which you are the regular conductor. That's all correct. You succeeded Robert Shaw, or? Uh, not directly. Uh, it was between, an intervening Yes, uh, Yoel well. Levy was there for 10 years right, between Shaw and, yeah. and me. Yeah, let's go. Let's say a little bit more about the actual scene we're about to hear. Well, you're, 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 it's a death scene, and so it's one of these trios where, again, uh, just on the cusp of death, the worlds are opening. Lorca in the world of the dead, welcoming the spirit of Margarita Shugu, mm. and of course her student saying farewell. And across all these farewells, her student realizes that it's now up to her to carry on. And so it ends with this astonishing call to La Libertad. And of course, Osvaldo, as a veteran of Latin America, all these freedom movements, you know, there's this trumpet call you'll hear that's just haunting. He calls it the call of wounded freedom. You know, over and over again, every one of these freedom movements tries generation after generation. Of course, now it's a very exciting time because we have some of the most exciting leadership in the world right now in Latin America. And across all of these generations, Finally, people have voted in their own leaders, and those leaders are very exciting. But this is a memory of the era of the dictators, and uh, it's very poignant. Well, some of those leaders turned into dictators, like the one in Venezuela. Well, I have to say, Hugo started off as something else, and sadly, he's uh, taken Castro as his model, which is not very attractive. Exactly. But, uh, but I have to say, what's going on now in Argentina, in Chile, in Ecuador, in Bolivia, it's, and of course, Brazil, Thank goodness there is a breath of freedom that is truly blowing across the continent. Let us go directly to the opera then and do the scene. Uh, it runs, yeah. I think, about five minutes, you said, so it will take us directly to the commercials, or rather the newscast and then commercials at 10. But now, more pure and modern opera.
This is a great revelation to me. I just didn't know of the work of this composer. Well, I'm so glad we've given you the chance to hear him because I, I think it's something very special now, that's going on in our world. Has any work yet been done at Lyric? I suppose I not at Lyric Opera, no. But uh, let's have that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> or at at which opera houses has his work been performed? Well, we did this at Santa Fe. And at so at the Santa, exactly yeah. at festivals and so on. And, but and the Met he, hasn't got him yet. Either. No, no. We did. Well, the Met has commissioned his next large oh. opera, oh. so uh, that we'll see in a few more years where that where that goes. Well, thank you so much for bringing uh, us bringing him to us tonight, and we will return to Peter Sellers and to Robert Spano after a full update on the evening's news. For that, to the newsroom and Roger Babbage, my guest tonight on our annual. Uh, night at the Lyric Opera are Peter Sellers, the celebrated director of opera and director of a great deal else as well. And he is the director and in the, and the librettist of the opera currently on the stage at the Lyric, Dr. Atomic, of which we will speak shortly. And our other guest is Robert Spano, a very important uh, younger American conductor who's now on the international circuit to be sure. But what holds him down in Atlanta is he is the director of the Atlanta Symphony, which has uh, risen rapidly under his leadership to one of the leading American orchestras. And he is, of course, also conducting Dr. Atomic at the Lyric these very days. Uh, let us come to, we're going back to classical opera, but not utterly classical. Well, classical, but not uh, uh, Handel 
They've now taken some of Handel's oratorios and made operas out of them by now. That, I've been specializing in that. You've been doing yes, that. Yes, I'm one of the people who really took that seriously. <laughs> and it's a good thing to do, I'm sure. But we go to the heights of Italian uh, romantic opera of the 19th, crossing over into the 20th century. Giuseppe Verdi. Absolutely. Oh, did he fall in love with Shakespeare? How did he happen to do Falstaff? It's so unlike all of his other operas. Yes, and it's the very end of his life, and he hadn't written an opera for 10 years, and he's in his 80s, and suddenly this absolute second wind this fantastic, bright, it's the fastest opera in the history of opera. It has more youthful energy and pizzazz, and it's not just starry-eyed and romantic, it is a sharp critique of the world. We're going to hear uh, Falstaff's famous honor aria, where he says, excuse me, we've heard the rhetoric about the Iraq war, excuse me, we're going to live. We're going to duck, and we are going to stay alive. And it really does cut right across, you know, the official White House story with no reverence at all, and just says, honor, excuse me. <laughs> Do not tell me about honor. Well, Falstaff distinguished himself in the Great Wars in France, uh, the uh, serving under Henry V, he distinguished himself with his cowardice. Yes, his absenteeism was very impressive, and of course, his serious, absolutely serious approach to drinking, which which he was serious about. And mm -hmm. so, and so, you have to. Well, it was all sherry. Well, sack, sack, of course, but you, is, you nonetheless have to say that there was some sense of focus, you know, some yeah. some sense of commitment, you know, uh, and and this aria is so irreverent and so magnificent, and uh, Verdi's having the time of his life. And this is sung by the great Tito Gobi. Who was Gobi? Gobi, for, for no, I mean Gobi. Gobi was, you know, a man who lived and breathed opera with wit, with danger, with a kind of wildness, with rhythmic verve and edge, mm -hmm. and uh, really his like has barely been seen since. He's one of those baritones that mm -hmm. has this, this everything is alive and popping and 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 this this kind of sparkle, and uh, and and literally Gobi was singing Falstaff well into his 60s, and the, the, it was just one of the in the entire history of opera, one of the performances where the man and the role just fused for all time. I think Gobi appeared at the Lyric in its early years, absolutely. isn't that right? Oh, absolutely. No, I mean, he was Falstaff here uh, on many occasions, and, uh, you know, I mean, he's really, this is one of the greats. And here he is, uh, singing with some ironic disdain about honor itself. Shall we say. <laughs>
né un piede, no, né un dito, no, né un capello, no. E dunque una parola che c'è in questa parola c'è dell'aria che vola vecchio strutto l'onore lo può sentirti è morto no vive sul coibini neppure perché ha torto lo funziona le musiche lo rompe l'orgoglio lo forma le calogne e per me non ne voglio Superbly done. Oh, my God. Unbelievable. And you guys were really laughing it up as you were listening. Well, the music is irreverent, and it just it's making every raspberry, you yeah. know, uh, fart, burp, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, hiss. I mean, everything's there. It's just, it's fantastic. Well, he's singing irreverently about Absolutely. the tradition of honor, which doesn't mean anything to him. Well, and really cutting through the hypocrisy yeah. of so much of the rhetoric that surrounds, you know, the act of declaring war and prosecuting a war that, of course, is not going to work. And uh, Well, you're relating that to the current war. In that, sir, you and I differ. Uh, no, but, well. But I'm not going to exercise You don't that. have to go there. But all I mean to say is, nonetheless, mm -hmm. it, war does tend to bring out a kind of level of pomposity that can be punctured rather effectively. Well, it's pretty hard to get men to put their lives at risk and many of them to die without nerving them up with delusions of uh, heroism. Yeah, no, and, and I have to say, music can do both. You know, and well, what's you, the marvelous thing is Verdi was a great patriot. The man who did more for us along those lines than anybody else was John Philip Sousa, I would say. <laughs> well, you know, but <laughs> Verdi, the, great, the military march is a major weapon. Verdi was a great patriot and wrote some of the most stirring patriotic music ever, but at the age of 80, just said, excuse me, just look twice and check your water. In his early operas, in fact, he is indirectly and metaphorically addressing the question of Italian revolution. Absolutely, because there's an occupying army, you know, yeah. in Italy, the Austrian army, and almost every Verdi opera has a political assassination in it. I mean, yes. it, is, it is hot stuff. It is supercharged. And we pause right now for some uh, uh, somewhat more prosaic purpose. 
and more prosaic material, but very valuable to those who care about getting a proper return for their buck. We'll be directly back after these words. To whom it falls to uh, note, as I should have earlier, that the Falstaff that we just heard, that opera, though not that particular singer, uh, is the next one in line at the Lyric. And uh, the run of the Falstaff production in this season begins on January 28th. Uh, Dr. Atomic, which is running right now, and which the two of you are deeply involved in, uh, is um, how, when did it begin and how many performances are left? We have three performances left, one tomorrow, Saturday night, one mm -hmm. a week from Saturday, and in between those two Saturdays, we would have one on Tuesday evening. And I believe there are some tickets still available for the Tuesday evening performance, so this coming Tuesday. We want to come to the opera uh, with, and talk some about the way it was put together and hear at least one uh, major aria from it. Does one speak of arias when it comes to an oh, opera? Oh, yeah, like oh, that? absolutely. This one, major still, aria, you we still put your finger on it. But we still use the Italian vocabulary. Oh, yes, Even totally. for Dr. Atomic. There's nothing like Italian. But now, speaking of Italian vocabulary and speaking of Italian opera, uh, we have a pure classic moment, namely from La Boheme. Uh, let's see, the two boys are back in the attic. Uh, the girls have left them, yes, both so Mimi and Musetta. And so they're working. Uh, they start by saying, let's just work, laboriam. And one is writing his poetry, and the other is painting his in pictures. Yeah, they're yes. tired of that. Exactly. <laughs> what a lousy pen, mm. what a lousy brush. So, uh, so they, they then, uh, without admitting it to each other... Uh, they start remembering their lost girlfriend. Exactly. And Rodolfo sings, Oh, mi mi tu più non torni. You will not return. Uh, Again. And, o giorni belli, those beautiful days. Piccolo mani. Odorosi capelli, little hands. Piccolo body. Yeah, it's a such such fantastic uh, text as well as music. It's some of the more yeah. glorious writing. Puccini and we have Thomas Hampson uh, here, and an unknown tenor. We Mystery are told. tenor, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know. And I challenge you to identify the tenor. Maybe you will. But here is that famous duet. <laughs>
Well, it's always interesting to sit with musicians while they listen to other musicians. And, uh, and I wonder if you guys want to share with the world what you've just been uh, saying privately in the studio. Well, one of the things I would want to share with the world of what we've been saying is how much I admire Puccini as a composer. And I'm, I'm so tired of the, the often heard accusations of his music being cheap or second rate or less than the genius that I think he really was. I find his music to be incredibly sophisticated at an emotional of it level. Yeah. It's just fantastic. And there's no more beautifully woven, intricate opera with uh, meaning after meaning after meaning, almost palimpsestically organized. Exactly. Than, than Madame Butterfly. Oh, I see. Well, I was I was willing to say that about a few of his and operas. And of La as well. <laughs> and uh, the other thing that astonishes me about Puccini is how he can uh, encapsulate oh, what feels like 10 minutes worth of aria content mm -hmm. into two or a minute and a half. I find that to be an extraordinary gift on his part because K.J. Damanina or, or uh, Nessun Dorma or any of the big famous artists are, are really not long, but when they're finished, we feel like we've heard something. And we heard Thomas Hampson singing there. And, and is, of course, miraculously, we also heard Jerry Hadley. Yes, you heard <laughs> The tenor du jour. We all got him right away. Right. We, as soon as we heard him, because we all miss him. Right what, well, what? we miss him. I mean, he's... What's the he, distinctive feature? Uh, there's it's a, the voice. It's the, the voice. Timbre, I mean, yeah. it's literally yeah. like recognizing somebody's face. I mean, you just, you hear it, and it can be nobody else. I mean, just as just, one always had that reaction to Pavarotti. Oh, sure. It sounded only like oh, Pavarotti. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. But uh, we, now Hampson is in He's at Lyric right now, right doing now Traviata, Traviata with Renee Fleming. And so I thought we might, and this needs quick response from the fellows in the booth, we might go to Traviata. We have what must be a rather old recording with the great Renata Tabaldi uh, singing uh, one of the arias in Traviata, namely Estrano. Oh, wow. And this is with the Orchestra del Maggio Musicale Fiorentino, Fiorentino, that is the May Festival in Florence, 
I um, heard her sing there once oh, at the fantastic. May Festival. Not Traviata, but Forza del Destino. Oh, oh well. terrific. Yeah. And so let us just hear that. A little, little bit taste more of Traviata. Wonderful.
And now we absent us from Felicity Wallen to the newsroom and Roger Bettish, who is not unaware that we have not yet taken any phone calls. And indeed, we're going to try to work in a few as we go. So we're opening the lines right now. 5917200 is, of course, the number. 5917200312, the area code, if you're calling long distance. If you're one of our listeners on the Pacific Rim, listening via internet and want to reach us via email, the email address is, again, as ever, extension720 at tribune.com. As the Marines could use a few good men, we could use a few good phone calls if you get them in quickly. 5917200. But now let us turn to the opera that both of you are so closely involved in and have helped to shape and which is on the boards at the Lyric at the moment, Dr. Atomic. Peter, it is based upon, I have read a number of times, it's based upon federal documents, apparently. Well, I mean, declassified documents. You know, what's fantastic yeah. is, you know, the, the atomic bomb was the, you know, the largest military project in human history, you know, up to that point two billion U.S., 1945 U.S. dollars, and massive secrecy. And it's the first, you know, it was literally born as propaganda. And what we're gradually finding out is the real story. You know, the the, the General Groves, mm -hmm. who masterminded the whole Manhattan Project uh, and built the Pentagon as well, you know, had uh, published uh, a decade later a book, Now It Can Be Told. It's wall-to-wall -wall packed with lies. You know, gradually we're finding out from Freedom of Information Act and so on, a little more of what actually went on. And so what I've done is shape a libretto from what people actually said and actually did, sometimes not what they later claimed they said or did, but in fact what now the secret records show. The opera uh, leads up to the day of Almogordo, the first test? Exactly, the first nuclear test. So it's the last seconds of the pre-atomic age. Yeah. And the evening ends with the world changing forever. And and it's and it's a really it's a it's a powerful moment. And what you're getting, you know, it's the way the Greeks, you know, worked is we know how this ends and where this goes. We know that Hiroshima and so on is on the way. They don't. You know, mm -hmm. we're watching these people struggle moment to moment with their decision. And I have to say one of the things I'm I think is most moving about the opera is that everybody's point of view is profoundly valid. This is not one of those cases where you can say who was right and who was wrong. This is a case where really fine people struggled. Is Oppenheimer in the classic sense or in the traditional sense the hero of this opera? Well, I mean, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a tragedy heroic uh, yeah. situation. I mean, he's truly caught. And, and of course, uh, you know, he's somebody who really opposed the arms race that followed, but of course was very proud of bringing, you know, the atomic bomb into existence and being, you know, hailed as the father of the atomic bomb. You know, I was struggling earlier tonight when we were having a private conversation, trying to remember the name of the man who was a very, very junior member of the whole operation and was a physicist at the University of Chicago and who supposedly drafted as a very young man the letter in which the atomic scientists were asking Truman not to use the bomb. The name was John Simpson. Oh, fantastic. Have you run into John Simpson? Oh, yes. Oh, thank you very much. You know, I think that's one of the most interesting things because, of course, we were really in there 100% because we had to beat Hitler. You know, if Hitler made the atomic bomb first, John Simpson was on this program a few times. You're telling that story. That's the well. Point. That's see. Yeah. That's what's incredible. You know, we if Hitler came up with that bomb first, it would be a disaster for civilization. Mm -hmm. Well, as it turns out, everybody's working full tilt, and May 1945, Germany surrenders. 
we learn that, in fact, the atomic project never got underway in Germany. I think mostly because the German scientists refused to let it move forward. And and then, of course... We're not giving Heisenberg the best possible... Well, you're right. I'm trying to. But yeah. we're, we're generous here. But the other thing, I think also that really stunned the world were the first images of Auschwitz, the first images mm -hmm. of the death camps, and this question of war crimes, crimes against humanity. And then the Chicago scientists who were working on the nuclear bomb began to ask themselves, is there some alternative? Can we find an uninhabited place to demonstrate this weapon where no one will have to die in order to show what this weapon will do? And it doesn't have to be trained on an essentially defenseless civilian population. And so they wrote a letter to Truman saying, please do not use this weapon on mm -hmm. Japan, and atomic energy should not be introduced to the world first as a weapon. And, and in fact, that letter was classified and declared so classified that the President of the United States was not allowed to read it. And only in recent years has that letter uh, been been released to the public. And and now I'm pleased to say it's set for chorus and orchestra by John Adams and is sung from the stage of the Civic Opera. <laughs> now, tell us about the one particular aria that we're about to hear. Well, what you're hearing is the end of Act One. They are trying to test an atomic bomb in the middle of a lightning storm in the Alamogordo Desert, which is not a particularly good idea. But Truman is meeting Stalin the next morning in Potsdam and needs to know whether he has the nuclear arrow in his quiver. Well, Robert Oppenheimer is finally left alone in this drizzle at 2 a.m. And it, the whole thing looks like it's a disaster. And of course, this question of introducing the greatest mass death in the history of humanity, you can't simply be proud of that. And it's a struggle, and his heart is divided. So he half hopes it will be a disaster, well, then, doesn't exactly. he? And it's one of those moving things. Only Robert Oppenheimer would codename an atomic test Trinity after the holy sonnet of John Donne, mm -hmm. batter my heart, three-personed God. And Oppenheimer was, of course, you know, not only a, a polymath scientist, but a brilliant connoisseur of music, of poetry, and, and, and he was particularly attached to the metaphysical poets. And that, that literally crisis of the soul. And we hear him singing. It's you, Oppenheimer. You hear singing. him singing. What does he? What does he? What are the words? What does he saying? Batter my heart. He's, he's using this the Donne. Is the actual holy oh. sonnet of John Donne. It concludes the first act. It's heartrending. And what John Adams has done is to take a kind of fantastic uh, uh, take on medieval music. You know, it sounds like one of these personal, you know, endless falling melodies that just is absolutely heartbreaking, and at the same time is asking God to lift us up again. And who is the singer? This is the one and only Jerry Finley, you know, right now unmatched in the world in his category. And let us also mention, this is from this summer at the Netherlands Opera. Uh, Lawrence Rennes is conducting the Netherlands Radio Philharmonic. Oh. And uh, I have to say, um, it's, uh, well, you'll get the idea. It's up overwhelming. And this is the recording from the Netherlands Absolutely. radio uh, broadcasting system. Absolutely. Here it is.
That's where we fade out, at least on the recording that we have. But that is very, very strong stuff. Oh, it's stunning. It's absolutely stunning. And I think one of And the... Peter was full of commentary while we were listening about the, uh, the was it the very last performance that Robert well, conducted? We, what's, what's incredible is to hear this performance from last summer and already the piece has grown so much. I mean, one of the things about a new piece of music, it's just like, a, you know, a new baby coming to the world. At the beginning, it's a little bit of a mess. Mm -hmm. And then gradually, you know, the child learns to talk and tells you who it is. And suddenly the performances are not comparable. I mean, we're performing this piece at a whole new level and it's astounding because this 
this scene was incandescent last night. And now to hear this from already a few months ago, you think things have grown. And this opera is coming into its own. And the performers have just arrived at a completely new level of insight and ease and daring and, and imagination with the piece now. But I think John has arrived at a completely new level, too. I find uh, I love Nixon and Klinghoffer and all, all the works of his that I've done because I've conducted a lot of John's music. But as you know, you've worked with him forever, too. And so you know what I mean when, when for me, it's stunning what he has achieved in this opera that all the greatness in the operas before this one is just in a whole other world. It's gone to a whole other world. How place. does a modern opera get into, quote, the repertoire? When and how does it get to start getting done, not by those who originally developed it, composed it, uh, and uh, shaped it, but by opera companies when elsewhere? Other, exact, that's exactly how it happens, I think, is, is when other companies take an interest in it and it starts being performed, then it enters well, which, the repertoire. Which modern operas of the sort that we've been talking about tonight have enter the general international repertoire. Well, I mean, you started with the Chairman Dances. Nixon in China has just taken off. It's performed all over the world. Mm -hmm. It's revived all the time. And it really, it stopped this idea that, you know, a composer could write one opera, which they died while they were writing. And, and you know, and, and it, it, it spelled the end of their life. In fact, you know, it launched an idea that opera could be contemporary, alive, funny, strange, mysterious, tender, touching, but totally alive and of this moment and being performed and being performed with beautiful tunes with a lot of uh, all, a whole range of emotion well nixon in china has achieved that have any other operas of the sort we're talking about Ina Damar is already having that life uh -huh, the one that we've listened to yes. tonight. what we heard tonight Ina Damar is moving that. around the world at this moment mm -hmm. you know, and John's yeah. opera's Dr. Atomic is having many different productions in the next few years you mm -hmm. know there'll be a new production of the Metropolitan next year uh, there'll be new productions in Europe uh, the piece is is actually these things have a long shelf life now excellent I'm so glad to hear it and we pause we owe um, just as Aristotle on his deathbed owed a cock to Aeschylus or to somebody, we, <laughs> that means a rooster, uh, we owe uh, uh, some commercials to our sponsors. We'll take care of those and then directly back. Who does occasionally make mistakes, and I made one a little while ago when I spoke of Aristotle. What was wrong with me? Sending, uh, saying, send a cock, a rooster, to whatever I said. It was, of course, Socrates who wanted that to go to Aesculapius, the great physician. Um, because uh, he was curing himself uh, through his own death. He's about to drink the poison, the hemlock, in Plato's uh, great dialogue, a great uh, uh, dramatic representation of the death of Socrates, the Phaedo. Uh, and that has nothing to do with opera. You could make a pretty good opera out of that, though, couldn't you? I'm, I'm sure we could. The death of Socrates would make a good well, opera. Well, actually, going back to the Greeks has everything to do with opera, since that's how to it sure. got started in Italy, was looking back to the Greeks. Now, gentlemen, we have... Uh, a number of calls, and we'll take at least one. Five nine one seven two double zero, and you are on the air. Good evening. Hello, me. Yes, sir. Oh, thank you very much. Um, about six months ago, I decided I needed to be uh, opera literate. I, I, I began to purchase operas and read the librettos, and I've searched the internet for programs uh, concerning opera. What I'd like to know from the panel is: is there a periodical I could subscribe to? Uh, that is dedicated to opera, that uh, where I could uh, get more information and learn more. And uh, my second question actually is, tomorrow or Sunday I'll be attending uh, a broadcast from the Metropolitan Opera here in Rockford. They're apparently simulcasting 
tomorrow it will be Verdi's Macbeth, um, around the world to 600 venues, and we happen to have one venue here. It'll be one of the local theaters broadcast in high definition. Would the Lyric Opera have any plans to do any such thing as well? well? I knew that you were going to ask something like that, and so we called in a special expert, uh, our good friend Jack Zimmerman, who in fact was a guest on this program only a little while ago talking about his new novel. Uh, but Jack is also the PR guy for the lyric, and he knows the answer. Well, uh, it's, it's a complex answer. Uh, first of all, I'd like to point out that we broadcast every opening night uh, on mm -hmm. FM radio. And I won't give the name of the station, but you can go to www.lyricopera.org. We're, we're very large about those things. This is WFMT. It's WFMT, of course. okay. And uh, the other thing is I, I would suggest that if you're new to opera, I would suggest going to our website and checking out our, our podcasts because you can learn a huge amount if you can download these podcasts, and, and they're just fonts of uh, fountains of information. Uh, and at the present time, we, we are not going to be uh, broadcasting into theaters, but, you know, things happen in time, and we'll wait. Wonderful. Thank you very much. By the way, I will be attending the Lyric on February 22nd for Barber of Seville. I'm oh, very excited. Wonderful. Thank you. Oh, the periodical you asked oh, about. Yes, you yes, might sir. want to investigate Opera News, which is the standard uh, organ of opera in, in uh, the world. Thank you very much. We thank you, sir, for the call. Appreciate it. Well, gentlemen, we're uh, coming very close to the end of the available time. And I do want to play one last operatic recording. We've agreed with strong insistence and totally welcome insistence uh, from... Peter Sellers particularly, <laughs> to go to the final fugue in Act 3 of Falstaff. And we'll do that in just a moment. But first, quickly, within the space of a minute or so, uh, what are your own professional plans? You're here for Dr. Atomic. Beyond that, what's on your schedule? Uh, this season, I'm headed back to Atlanta, where I'm uh, getting a program ready to take to Carnegie Hall with my orchestra and chorus. I, I, uh, I love my orchestra, but one of the distinguishing features for me in Atlanta is the chorus that I've inherited mm -hmm. from Robert Shaw. So sure. it's a great joy to take them to New York. And Peter Sellers, you're all over the world all the time, aren't you? I'm all over the place, and uh, I'm actually, you know, continuing with some of these operas that we created. Because as I mentioned, you know, you can't just bring them into the world and say that's that. You know, it's like democracy. It's like you know, you have to feed your kids three times a day, and you can't just say, oh, they were fine when they were seven. You're a loving you know, parent. You, yeah, you have to keep with it. And of course, if you do. The kids turn out to amaze you. And so, you know, we're taking care of these pieces and continuing to perform them. And of course, partially because of you, Bob and I sat together two nights ago and said, we need to do Falstaff together. And of course, we walked in tonight. And what are you playing for us, Milt? Falstaff. Then share with us your enthusiasm for and give us a very quick introduction to the scene we're about to hear. Tutto nel mondo è burla. And somehow the sound of the Italian actually gives the meaning away, which is all the world's folly and everyone's a fool. And here we go. And you might as well enjoy it. You know, right now there are 36,000 nuclear weapons pointed at major cities everywhere else. What can you do? Please step back a little laugh. There it is. And with that, we thank Peter Sellers and Robert Spano for joining us. And we'll listen to Falstaff until we're out of time.